Hi everyone, I just wanted to jump on here before we get into the show. In this episode, we talk about the ongoing invasion of Ukraine and the cybersecurity activities that have been sparked from it. And if you're uncomfortable with this, please feel free to skip ahead. If you want to support the people displaced by this, you can donate to the Red Cross and the good work that they're doing, or check out further links to resources in the show notes. Our hearts go out to all those who have been impacted by the recent events. Thank you, and here's the show. I don't really know how to begin this episode, because the world is a little bit on fire. Yeah. Not a great time in the world, is it? Not a great start to 2022. No. We had Wordle. That was good. <laughs> Do you remember Wordle? We had Wordle. Yeah. I still play Wordle. Yeah. Today's was good. Yesterday's was tough. My wife finds it very surprising that I am good at 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown, <laughs> the countdown game. Like, I'm okay at, like, guessing the, the anagrams. I'm... All right at Wordle, but I think I'm better at Countdown. Yeah, Countdown is stressful. Like, the time is so short, I will pause it and, like, try and, like, work out the anagram. I can't do it in the amount of time of the commercial break. Did you see on Twitter that we had a suggestion, a follow-up from when we were talking about the B and C listers who we would like to use and champion one password? We had someone suggest Susie Dent from Countdown. Which uh, I mean, oh. solid choice. I wow. thought it was a solid choice. Yes. It was Andy. He said she'd win three-word password every time. She absolutely would. Oh. And I did say that I reckon she would get confused and I would have to remind her what game it was because she would just ask for a vowel all the time. <laughs> and I would just be like, this isn't how this game works. Oh. Do you think we could get her on the show? That would be great. That would be some sort of strange crossover, right? So, it would be a bit odd, but I'd... Uh... I'm up for it. I'm sure she has an agent, right? Yeah. Oh, oh, she definitely has an agent. Let's reach out. Let's go for it. Susie Dent. We'll get her on the show just to talk. Just to be like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> and we had B. Winton on Twitter share Passwordle with us. Have you guys checked this out? Wait, wait, wait. What is this? So it's the clues in the name. It's basically Wordle, but with passwords. So you have to guess a password based on the 256 hash? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> This is bananas. It looks like Wordle, but ah. expert mode. <laughs> As you type in passwords and hit enter, <laughs> parts of the SHA-256 hash will light green if it's the right character. Others are yellow, and then you've got gray ones. So you have to then guess another one whose letters match from the, from <laughs> the first is, shot. This is impossible, right? These are long passwords. This is not a possibility. This, you can't do this. This is how many characters long is this? This is ridiculous. You can't, you can't, a human cannot do this. I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe Goldberg could do this, but like a human cannot do this. Like even if you guess, you know, password and then password one, the, the hash would be completely different. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. I love this. Oh, I'm closing this tab now, though, because it's giving me anxiety. Yeah, the competitive nature in me really wants to complete this, but I <laughs> I know that that's not possible. Yeah. Yikes. I love the fact that they give you a few more attempts than Wordle as well. Like, you know, <laughs> oh, you, you don't get like five attempts. You, you know, you get like eight because... <laughs> Yeah, that that's useful. You'll need it. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's jump into some Watchtower Weekly and yeah, hit the uh, obvious subject head on. This is how hacking groups have responded to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So, hacking collective Anonymous 
they're the ones you know that have all the fancy videos announced it was at war with russia so the hacking collective took to twitter and said we want the russian people to understand that we know it's hard for them to speak out against their dictator for fear of reprisals they stated we as a collective want only peace in the world we want a future for all humanity. So while people around the world smash your internet providers to bits, understand that it's entirely directed at the actions of the Russian government and Putin. So following this, Ukraine State Telecommunications Agency announced that six Russian government websites, including the Kremlin's, were down. And that's according to the Kiev Independent. The agency also stated that Russian's media regulator website had gone down and that hackers had got Russian TV channels to play Ukrainian music. So later it was also reported that Anonymous leaked database of the Russian Ministry of Defense. On the flip side, the Conti ransomware gang weighs in with you attack Russia and we'll hack you back. So the, the notorious cybercrime gang said it will strike back at critical infrastructure if cyber attacks are launched against Russia. So the Conti ransomware gang says that it supports the Russian government's invasion of Ukraine. And if anybody launches a retaliation attack against Russia, they will hit back hard. So all of these announcements came after Ukraine called on hackers to volunteer their services to spy on Russian forces and, and protect their country's critical infrastructure. Things have heated up digitally massively as, as well as on the ground. The interesting thing is, is that there are obviously a lot more parties at play than, than just these two groups. The call to arms almost from Anonymous was fairly clear. What are your thoughts about this, guys? I think it's great that hackers are pitching in however they can. I do not think that the impact to Russian citizens is great. That part's not what I'm cheering for here. Like anything that anyone can do to help. I think it's interesting that there are groups that are obviously kind of either state-sponsored or state-sanctioned that are coming from Russia that are on the defense and then kind of almost civil groups are on the offensive, right? Like there is obviously an undercurrent here as well that is probably two nations attempting to, to hack each other. It's kind of a, a new level of, of warfare that mm. I don't think we've seen before. Yeah, I think it just shows how differently wars are being fought in this day and age, doesn't it? And we can also see that with the tech-related sanctions that are being placed on Russia as well. Yeah, there are so many sanctions. Obviously, everybody can do more, and governments absolutely should. But what I found very interesting was the usage of various pieces of, of technology in order to prop up when things are taken out, right? Like, when there are on the ground damage being impacted upon infrastructure one of the the nicer parts of that that i saw was elon musk sending out satellite dishes for his starlink service yeah i hadn't really considered that technology previous but that is such a good use case of keeping up an infrastructure it's almost decentralized right so I don't want to take up the whole podcast talking about this. We, we certainly could. There are so many nuances and so many things that I'm sure we're going to say. And then a month later, it's going to be untrue or different or anything like that. So, I mean, please do look out as well for you know misinformation. And uh, if you are sharing information online around Ukraine and, and Russia, like make sure you're looking at credible sources before sharing it. OK, so this next one, NVIDIA allegedly hacked its hackers and stole its data back. So uh, this one's from TechSpot. Several online security groups are reporting that the South American hacker group 
lapsus dollar. Lapsus dollar sign? What a, like, first of all, uh, three out of ten. <laughs> that high. It sounds like a crystal that is going to help me sleep. A lapsus. Yeah. <laughs> so this group is claiming to be behind the recent cyber attack on NVIDIA, the graphics chip making giant. It's also claiming that NVIDIA hacked them in return and stole the encrypted data back and ransomed back their machines. For now, this is just hearsay, but it does make for a great, you know, turning the, the tables story. NVIDIA told The Telegraph that it, it was investigating a security incident, which The Telegraph believes involved NVIDIA's internal systems being completely compromised. So Lapsus claimed to have stolen one terabyte of data from NVIDIA and were threatening to leak NVIDIA employees' passwords and, and security details. Shortly after, Lapsus said that NVIDIA hacked it in return, the group supposedly left one of its virtual machines enrolled in NVIDIA's mobile device management program, which gave NVIDIA the backdoor into its systems. NVIDIA remotely encrypted the stolen data and cut off Lapsus's access to its network, but the hackers claimed to have made a copy of the data as well. So Lapsus initially said that it would hold the data ransom. Now the hackers are saying that they're offended that NVIDIA would hack them back and are leaking the data in retaliation. <laughs> so NVIDIA has since confirmed that its proprietary information is being leaked by hackers. And Lapsus have demanded that NVIDIA make its drivers open source if it doesn't want more of that data leaked. Well, this got messy real fast. I uh, Right? Yeah. You can't just have a clean ransomware these days. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just love that Lapsus was offended that NVIDIA would deign to to hack them in return. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> How dare you, hackers? Yes. How very dare you. NVIDIA, give us a call. We can hook you up with something to help keep you safer online. I'm not, I, would that help? I don't know. It can't <laughs> It can't hurt. Uh, that That is very true. It can't hurt. Yeah, it can't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so this next one, uh, researcher reverses redaction. Oh, my goodness. This is. Uh, are we making these... M- Tongue twisters now on purpose. <laughs> I love this. Researcher reverses redaction, extracts words from pixelated image. So this one's on a bleeping computer. So a researcher has demonstrated how he was able to successfully recover text that has been redacted using the pixelation technique. So further, the researcher has released a GitHub tool that can be used by anyone to reconstruct text from obscure pixelated images. This is incredible. Also incredibly bad. You know, this is how we redact information quite a lot of the time, but incredible. Uh, So Dan Petro, uh, lead researcher at offensive security firm Bishop Fox. Uh, I don't know whether we're rating company names now, but that, I mean, that's... You can rate that one. uh, If their logo isn't a fox in a bishop hat, I'm disappointed. (laughs) So they've demonstrated how they were able to completely recover text from an image redacted using the pixelation method. When publishing sensitive images online, pixelation or blurring is often used as a redaction technique by media outlets and uh, researchers alike. So Pedro shows why it might be safer to just stick with good old, you know, opaque bars over the text that you want to hide rather than changing it with alternate techniques, especially with pixelation. So last year, JumpSec Labs shared an open challenge for anyone to decipher the text present in a redacted pixelated image. How could I refuse such a challenge, said Petro. And after applying his magic, the researcher managed to fully reverse the text sent to him. 
Okay, so we've got the image in front of us, and it is fairly incredible that they managed to do that. Like, mm. yeah, but if you blur your eyes, you can almost read it. Like, <laughs> can you though? It's like how you've solved this. Just squint, Rue. Yeah, it's like H G I L R. The middle one is like Shea Ink or something. The middle word. Yeah, maybe. I don't think that this is actually. I see an I M twenty one G four C Y. So <laughs> after applying his his magic, the the researcher managed to fully reverse the the text sent to him. Um, I reached out to Caleb Herbert at JumpSec, and they confirmed that my guess was correct, states Petra. So Caleb also asked me not to disclose the solution, so uh, you reading this uh, can have a go at it yourself. So there you go. That's why we don't have it in front of us. Interestingly, Petro's partially disclosed solution is blurred rather, rather than pixelated, so others can continue to experiment. Although similar solutions have, have existed for a in kind of enhanced pixelation of photos or landscapes, no concrete real-world solutions released thus far promised accurate recovery of text present in pixelated images. So while, you know, simultaneously cutting out the, the noise. So the, the researcher's success with solving JumpSec's challenge prompted him, along with Bishop Fox, to release a new source tool on, on GitHub called Unredactor. Uh, a test run shows Unredactor reconstructing the original text in its entirety and correctly from the given pixelated input. So with that being said, publishing sensitive images online using opaque shapes for, for redaction provides far more assurance than, than pixelation. Just, you know, just don't do it in a PDF and then give them the editable version or something, right? <laughs> the bottom line is, if and when you need to redact text, use black bars covering the whole text. Never use anything else. No pixelation, no blurring, no fuzzing, no swirling. The last thing you need after making a great technical document is to accidentally leak sensitive information because of an insecure redaction technique. Okay, so my main takeaway from the story, I think, is that we just need to be even more careful than we already are on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> this is impressive. I think it also depends how much you pixelate something, right? Yes. <laughs> if there are four blocks of random gray shades, I don't think they have much to work on. Yeah, I would. so I use, I still use a tool called Skitch. Oh my goodness, really? I do, yes. I didn't yeah. ever note by that in like 1984. Yep, they did. Yeah. <laughs> and like you have to you can like sign into Evernote with it and I don't do any of that. I just use it as like a throwaway tool for sharing things and I frequently will use the redacted text feature in it. I should try it and then run it through this this app and see what happens. It's almost like you live in a world where you don't know that CleanShot exists. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm I'm yeah. fascinated by this. I honestly am. Like ClearShot is one of the best apps and utilities that i use every day it's so good and skitch was all right like five years ago <laughs> uh-huh i am a i'm a i really am a creature of habit like I, I will stick with the comfortable thing that i know instead of i've now hit that point where i don't just try new things anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean i'm gonna buy you a license for for clean shot like <laughs> All right, so you spoke to Jeremiah from Stack Overflow. Oh, this was, Jeremiah was uh, one of my favorite interviews in a long time. Like I really, I had a great time talking to him. So please, please to enjoy this wonderful interview with Jeremiah from Stack Overflow. 
Joining me on the show today is Jeremiah Peshka, staff software developer at Stack Overflow, an extensive online community where you can get answers to all your technical questions. And today, we hope to dive into why building communities for developers is so important and how code is reshaping our world. Welcome to the show, Jeremiah. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm sure most of our listeners are aware of what Stack Overflow is and what it has to offer and have been there and taken code snippets and shipped it out to production systems. But for those who might not know, can you give us a quick overview? Sure. So Stack Overflow is obviously the finest repository of copy and paste snippets you can find. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, but like Stack and the a lot of the other Stack Exchange, well, all the other Stack Exchange sites is at its simplest where users can go and ask questions and get answers to those questions. We have a lot of different sites where there are different communities like sci-fi, cooking, woodworking, etc., where you can go and focus in not just on general code, but you can dig in on you know, detailed hobbies that you have or even you know, detailed code like dba.stackexchange or server fault. With 55% of developers visiting Stack Overflow every day and 80% visiting at least once a week, what kinds of real-world impacts have the public and private forums had? So there's a private version of Stack Overflow, if you didn't know. It's Stack Overflow for Teams. This is my obligatory advertisement for products that we sell that allow me to eat. <laughs> but like we have our own private Stack install, and that's for me, it's replaced asking in chat, like, hey, how does X work? Right? I hop over to our internal Stack Overflow, and I search for it. And then I'll find you know, an article, and if there are edits, I can go and look at how this has changed over time. I can look at comments that other people have had. And so if this exists, if an answer is there, it's a really good way that people can sort of edit that over time, add a lot more context as we change and grow. And it allows a lot of collaboration, so you can talk about that thing. And if I don't find something, I will ask a question on the internal site or the public site if it's not actually about Stack Overflow's internal code. And I can say, hey, you know, I've got this problem. Here's everything I've tried. Everything is terrible. I am crying. Please help my code compile. And then I can post that link internally in chat and put it on Twitter and say, LazyWeb, help me solve my problems. Coding is hard today. Stack Overflow is one of those sites that has really stood the test of time in my mind. Like it's been around for as long as I've been a developer, which is going on almost two decades now. And it continues to be a community that really self-perpetuates and continues to move forward. It continues to grow. It continues to be valuable and hold, be held in really high regard within sort of the wider developer community. What do you think has sort of led to that longevity? What what is the what is the secret sauce at Stack Overflow that sort of saved it from being a fad? Computers change constantly. Like that's not secret sauce at Stack Overflow, obviously. But I think we make it easy to get answers to questions. Anyone can provide an answer, whether you have a million points or a very small number of points. Anyone can ask and answer questions, and I think part of that is what's made it really helpful. I got started as well, like you, when it first came out, and I was like, this is really cool. Someone else can help me write code. And then I found questions that I could answer, and so I just started answering questions. It's a lot of fun. It's a fun community where you can collaborate with other people, and help build better answers to questions or even rephrase questions and make questions better. Yeah, I've, I've certainly seen that, especially like in the iOS development world, as things change over the years, you know, you'll see certain answers start to get upvoted over others as new practices come to light or as there become better ways to do things. And it's, it's really cool to sort of watch the evolution of some of the old school questions and the answers that they that they have. 
So spinning a little bit back into the meta around developer communities, like why do you think it's important to foster and build that community in the dev space? And, and what do you see as the obvious benefits? One big thing is like it's a force multiplier. If I were to ask you, how would I do X, whatever that is, with one password like in private, you could give me a great answer and we'd have an awesome conversation about it. But it goes no further than whoever happens to be present in whatever room that conversation is happening in. But if I ask, how do I do X with one password on Stack Overflow, it means I can get that same great answer and conversation, but everybody else who has a browser also has access to that great answer and conversation and can start taking part. And so you know, some of it is it levels the playing field, it makes everything accessible to as many people as possible. And then the other kind of fun thing is it makes onboarding of really complex ideas a lot easier. You know, documentation only gets you so far because you've written your own code, you know all of your own assumptions. Why should you write them down? Which I know none of us have ever done when documenting our own projects. I, I haven't, for sure. <laughs> Clearly, that's, that's why you're here. Um, <laughs> and so, as you know, we're asking these questions, right? And Stack has this whole, like, how do you ask a question sort of thing? And, like, tell us what you've done, what you've tried, you know, all the assumptions you have. And so, by writing all that stuff down in your question, it sort of helps onboard people into that knowledge space that you're in. And likewise, the best answers I've found are also sort of onboarding people into that solution. That's sort of maybe a less obvious benefit, right? But it's a way to bring people with you to the expertise that you have. Yeah. I think like the best answers I've ever found, the best ones I've provided, which are unfortunately few and far between, but the best ones I've found, which are much more common than my own good ones, they really are like sort of, here's a journey come with me. I understand where you are over there in the hinterlands of suffering. Come towards the richness of the valley of success. That's such a great, I love that. That's such a great way to put that. I want to spin a little bit over to the security side of things. It's very possible that I'm bringing my own bias to this discussion in my own worldview, but it feels to me like security and secure coding practices and things like that have a little bit more of the mind share these days in the development community. Do you think that's true? Are you also seeing that trend? And how is Stack Overflow helping those in sort of the security space? I do see that. People are really incorporating security into how they think about programs, how we build things today, since it is so important. And you can't rely on you know, a well-configured firewall anymore and a password form to protect your users' data. Security is really, really hard. Part of the reason why that discussion is coming up is because a lot of security revolves around understanding the nuance of what you're working with in a really deep way to do it effectively or having a nice abstraction that helps you push that nuance down. Yeah. And I think one of the ways that uh, Stack Overflow helps is one it like you know it makes it easier to find this kind of content. Like sure you have to match the right words and figure out like Google how do secure asp.net. But it lets us have that conversation around nuance and it's a really good way where sort of the better ideas tend to win out or at least people can put those caveats in to sort of say like hey, you know this is really cool. But here's some more nuance you need to be aware of. And I think, you know, we help developers understand some of those issues and nuances and bring that back into their own projects. Since the start of the pandemic, we've seen, obviously, the resulting increase in remote work. We've seen the number of cybersecurity questions soaring 
on Stack Overflow. Is that something that you continue to see? And do you think that the pandemic was a forcing function there? Or was this a trend that was that was already sort of in progress? I do think that. One, I think that people were becoming more and more aware that security is really important and that it's very hard to secure insecure application that was never designed to be secured. So I think that's some of what's driving it is that you know, we're, we're, as an industry, becoming more and more aware that these applications just should be secure by default. But then you know, everyone was starting to work from home. You suddenly have gone from locked down laptops and desktops, very tightly controlled by the security department or IT, controlled by asset tags and everything else. And suddenly you have people at home with their eight-year-old computer that they bought at Costco or wherever that has who knows what on it. And now that's expected to connect to the VPN and perform just fine. And so you have these untrusted devices connecting to the network. And you also have a lot of internal applications that were never intended to run on untrusted devices. And so suddenly we've now been thrust into a world where we have to be aware of all of these things and we have to be far more paranoid or at least far more thoughtful about how we approach security. I've definitely noticed more awareness about security. You could put a really poorly configured home workstation on the VPN and suddenly the corporate card is floating around the internet because, right, because you didn't secure things correctly and... Your own password is your dog's name, followed by one, two, three, four. I mean, no, no one that listens to this show for sure, but yes, uh, that is definitely a thing that happens. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I've ever done. <laughs> and I think, yeah, you know, I, I did some research. I actually went to our data people about this too because I wasn't sure. I, I had a hunch just from like scrolling, and it turns out that yeah, that you know, the trend did definitely go up at the beginning of the pandemic, and it's continued to be relatively high. You occasionally get dips. But on the whole, it seems like people are continuing to think about how to secure applications. Yeah, that's good to hear. I don't, sorry, I, I hesitated because I don't like why it's happened or I don't like the, the, the forcing <laughs> function aspect of the pandemic, but it's nice that something positive is coming out of it, I suppose. All right. You brought data to answer the last question where you're like, oh, I went to the I went to the data folks and like found out about, you know, if cybersecurity questions are growing. I will now ask you a question that I don't think you can back up with data. Do you feel code is reshaping our world in 2022? And if so, how? I think code is making it a lot easier for people to work with data and to understand the world around them. Back when I was still at graduate school, I, I was very lucky to attend like a this is, tells you how nerdy it was. I went to Oregon Programming Languages Summer School. Nice. That's amazing. Yeah. Did you get a certificate? No. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of the speakers was Andy Gordon, who was at Microsoft Research at the time, and he was working on a lot of really cool stuff in Excel. And he brought up that Excel, in his mind, is the most used programming tool in the world. And I do want to bring this up because like, code isn't just programs in Java or C Sharp. But it's also things like Excel, SQL, R. And all these tools make it so much easier for people to understand the world. And Excel and R in particular have so much built-in functionality where you can just say, like, I want you to run this kind of analysis on this table and put it in a chart for me. And it makes it really easy to understand that. And then with more people writing code, these tools have to get better or somebody is going to replace them. Excel and R and Tableau and all these commercial products, they have to have more features than the other guy because that's why we buy these things, or at least they have to be more useful than the other program. And so the more that people are using these tools means it's going to drive more change and produce richer tools that help us understand the world 
even more. That's really a lot of it for me. I, I think code gives us so many interesting ways to look at all of the software that we have around us, how that software interacts. Um, so I, I do think that code really is reshaping our world. One is, again, like easy access to stuff like Excel just democratizes our ability to understand what's going on around us. And I think to the broader point of like what, what even is Stack Overflow, the fact that we can have concentrated communities, whether it's via a collection of tags on Stack Overflow or you're doing a Stack Overflow collective, which is like a, a focused set of tags where there's, there's one for Go and you know that people who work on Go are looking at this collective and can answer your questions. Or even specialized Stack Overflow websites like dba.stackexchange. You can go into these communities and interact with a group of people who are trying to either master that technology or help others master that technology. And that really drives forward as well, that excellence in how we're interacting with the data and the world around us. Your take on sort of Excel and the democratization of this like really spun this answer on its side for me because, of course, that type of scripting is programming. That is coding, yeah. right? It's not... It's not compile and run. It's not building apps from scratch, but it is still coding at the end of the day. And people are taking and manipulating data with some sort of language or syntax and stuff like that. And so that sort of blew up my perception of this, that you're, you're totally right. Okay, so what about us as developers and sort of stewards in these communities? Like where, where do we need to do better? What needs to happen to reduce some of the pain points and, and make our work more impactful? That is an awesome question. This is where I get to give you the full disclosure too. I've been at Stack since like the end of October. And so one of the things that has come up is, you know, you go and you look at code and you look at code that somebody else wrote, whether that somebody else is actually a separate human being or it's just you six months ago. But one of the big things I think we can do as developers is to remember that code, any code you're looking at, especially when someone's asking a question, that code is written given a certain point in time and a certain place, which also includes the author's mental state. And it's also written under a set of constraints. And so understanding all of that before you start trying to help someone, or at least assuming sort of the best possible scenario, I think is really important when you're addressing, like helping somebody out. You don't know what they were doing. You don't know what they were thinking. So trying to understand that really helps. I think one of the big things is understanding the problem space before we write code. I know that sort of any time I start a new project, even like file new, and I just start smashing the keyboard. But you know, I mentioned earlier like that security, you have to understand a lot of nuance. And so really digging into the problem space and saying, okay, what is this? What am I looking at? What are all the tricky parts about it? Maybe I should write down every assumption that I have about this subject and then validate those. And it's not like you need to do big design up front where you produce a 600-page specification, but you do need to understand what needs to be implemented and sort of just what are the actual thorny bits of the thing you have to implement. And some of that you know, boils down to finding who the actual people this impacts are and then start asking hard questions. But even then, like once you understand what people are actually trying to do, right? Like maybe, maybe there's code out there that already solves this problem. And maybe that code's open source and you can either extend it or add tests to it and reuse it really easily. I personally really like to borrow or buy code before I write it myself because odds are somebody else has thought about it more thoroughly than I have so far. It's hard. It can be hard, I will say, to break out of that not invented here 
syndrome when you're working on stuff. So that's commendable to hear. <laughs> I, I don't always succeed. I'm not <laughs> perfect at it or great. Uh, but I try to keep that in mind. Like writing good code is really hard to do. And writing secure good code is really, really hard. Which is sort of my last thought on this area is talk to security people early. Right? It's not a it's not necessarily a terrifying conversation, but odds are all I really do is I, I talk to them and say, like, hey, we're building X. What should I be terrified of? And that usually leads to really, really interesting conversations. I, I meet up with one of our security engineers every five or six weeks just to find out, you know, what's worrying him, tell them what we're working on. And most of the time he's like, oh, yeah, you don't need to worry about whatever you're doing. That sounds reasonable. But having those conversations frequently, you know, one, it reminds the security people that you exist and they can help you. And two, it's also this reminder that, hey, these are people. They're not a blocker to what you're trying to do. Yeah. One of the things that we've, I mean, it's it's fairly fairly easy for us to do at one password. It's fairly easy to say, I think, is that, you know, obviously we have a great deal of security developers on the team. Everyone sort of thinks with that security first mindset, but then we also have specific security development teams and they're integrated right in with all of the development teams. And as we're putting up merge requests and stuff like that, like they are, they're watching everything that goes on. They're doing sort of like random hit security reviews of MRs that go up. And it's so great because it's like you get into some conversations sometimes. We're just like, oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. That's a really good point. We should take that into account here. And so having that be part of like your workflow where you just you've integrated in with a security team or, you know, security individuals is such a boon to like the overall health of whatever it is you're building. It really can't be overstated. Yeah, and it really really can't. I think. Like, this is an underlying current to like talk to people, right? Like uh, I think people get into software development, they're like, I'm gonna write code all day, semicolons and curly braces. Oh my. But like to me, the most interesting part about this is getting to talk to people who know things that I don't. I'm never going well, not never, but I'm unlikely to become a security wizard, but I can talk to security people and understand a little bit more of what I need to do so that I don't have to have a bad conversation with security people. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's bring it home. You've already used up your one sort of like promotion token uh, earlier in the interview, but I will, I will, I will let you. <laughs> I will, I will let you. I'll let you go again. Where can people go to find more out about you, about Stack Overflow? What cool things does Stack Overflow have that people might not know about that they should go sign up for and and have their company start paying for? <laughs> Lay it on us. So yeah, to find out more about Stack Overflow, people can head over to stackoverflow.com. You can ask questions. You can go to stackexchange.com to find out what a bunch of the different sites that we have available are. If you want to ask questions about Stack Overflow, we even have a site, meta.stackoverflow.com, where you can talk about Stack Overflow using Stack Overflow. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) If you would like to have Stack Overflow for your team, we have Stack Overflow for Teams. There's Stack Overflow Enterprise, if you would like an entire Stack Overflow, all of your own. And then there's uh, Stack Overflow Collectives, which is like sort of targeted at a set of tags, right? There's one for like Google Cloud, there's one for Go. And then to find out more about me, I have poorly chosen a domain name. It is facility9.com, which is the word facility followed by the number nine. Because why have a clear domain name when you have to explain it every time? I'm there right now. Oh, no. 
<laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go read all about programming with types in C sharp. It's gonna be yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremiah. This has been an absolute pleasure to have you on today. Thank you so much for coming by. Take it easy. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Take care. All right. So do we have an Ask One Password this we week? We do. We have a couple of follow-ups from the last Ask One Password we did. Okay. If these are corrections, I'm not interested. No. <laughs> I, I, of course, joke. We will always take corrections. I won't. Please do email in with all the copious mistakes no doubt we make. <laughs> Send your emails to podcast at onepassword.com. Yes. And then they will get filtered in and we Rue won't know about them. Is that a real email address? It is. Wow. How about it? That's great. I like that you didn't even <laughs> We have an email address. This is amazing. How do you think people get in touch with the show, Rue? People get in touch with the show? Yeah. Whew. God, I love it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if you two can remember, but we had a discussion about unique email aliases a few episodes back. So we have a few people emailing about that and what they do. So this is a correction. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a correction. It's kind of a correction. I don't mind. I'll take it. I'll take it for the team. Uh, he said, greetings from a long-term 1Password user and podcast listener. I was listening to the last podcast episode where the subject of using a unique email address for every service that you use was mentioned. I have been using this method for many years now and it works great. Of course, I also use a unique and strong password for each. And no, you don't need different domains in order to avoid bad guys guessing your naming method. I've used Fastmail for as long as I remember and use a unique Fastmail alias for each service, which just redirects to my regular email inbox. I name the alias with the service name and append a random alphanumeric code to the alias. This makes it virtually impossible for a bad guy to guess what the email address for my bank would be. This method makes it easy to do a cursory check to make sure that the sender of an email to me matches the email address they should be using to contact me. It also means that I can change an email address for any particular service by just generating a different alphanumeric code at the end of the email address and updating the alias and service username to match. All the usual email rules and filters can be used to manage incoming emails, either using Fastmail at the server end or your email client of choice. Hope this helps and keep up the good work. Jeff. Nice. Good advice. That's good. That's a, that's a nice way of dealing with it. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, just the, you know, service name was what we were talking about last time. And, you know, obviously that that can be kind of reversed engineered. But yeah, I like this. Do you know, some, some services I do generate the username as well as the password when it's not a public facing username. Interesting. I don't know why, but I just started doing it. Huh. Mm, I think mainly because... You know, my name as a username is usually taken. Yeah, I don't run into that problem quite as much with my typical moniker. It's an interesting idea, though. Mm. Uh, Chris on Twitter also says, Following the Ask One Password conversation, I have converted most of my logins to use unique email IDs. It was easy to manage with Apple's Hide My Email. It gives extra security against a bad actor resetting your password if they have access to your email. It's, it's interesting how much feedback we've had about this segment mm. like i agree i use some of these hide my email things sometimes managing them just seems to be one more thing that i have to manage and kind of keep an eye on and keep a track on and then if i sign up to that service with it like i have no that like that information is difficult and stored somewhere else like it's a great service i just i i'm not sure i use it enough the last one from Scott on Twitter, he asks i haven't heard this answered nor through my weak search skills have i found it how safe is it to use 1Password, the extension or the web version, on a company laptop or school Chromebook? 
I always treat those devices as if I have no privacy. Um, so any any computer that is not yours and is in a managed environment, you do have to treat with a, a deal of suspicion because it's possible that whomever owns and manages that that computer could be watching what you're doing. There could be key loggers in place. There could be any sort of, I would say, white hat spyware on there. So be careful, I think is sort of the, the way I would say it. If it's if it's a device that is unmanaged and just owned by the company or the school, then you can sort of treat it as your own up to the point where you, you realize that it, it is not yours and they could sort of take it back at any point and maybe forcibly get information off of it if they want to. So the, the interesting thing that I've seen some of our users do is have like a family account, have a separate user account for the, this device and then restrict the vaults and the items and the information that that, that yeah. user has access to. That's a really good approach, actually. I really like that. Like, obviously, it's a it's a workaround. And so, like, I'd really love to see us endorse something akin down that line. But I, I really like it. Like, I, I think it solves the problem perfectly. You can restrict it hugely as, as to what it has access to. And then just go on your phone and, like, move things to a shared vault that that account has access to. And so, like, just move things as you need them. What's really nice about that solution is, one, you can have a different password for this secondary account. So you don't necessarily have to be worried about someone getting that password through a keylogger or other means. You can put just logins on there that you would want to use on there. And at that point, it doesn't matter between filling the login from one password or typing the login off of, like, large type on your iPhone or your, your Android device. So, no, that's, I actually like that a lot. That's a good idea. Nice. And if you also want to get in touch with the show, you can do so using the Ask One Password hashtag on Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at onepassword.com. So, shall we close up with Ridiculous Requirements? Okay. Dun, 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 dun. So, welcome to Ridiculous Requirements, the game where we work together to come up with passwords not advised that fit the honestly terrible requirements. Okay, so this week we're going with a food recipe theme. So oh, I love it. The requirements are it must contain an edible fruit native to Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines and Thailand, named in some regions as the king of fruits with a strong odour and thorn-covered rind. It must contain the act of cooking using live fire and smoke to cook the food. It must contain a name often given to various types of fish deemed exceptionally large or tasty. It must contain a dish in which a food is dipped into a communal pot of liquid. And it must contain a three-letter acronym or abbreviation using all caps. It must refer to the title given to a male monarch at least once. And all passwords combined must form a strange, unappetising recipe. This was actually generated using the random recipe generator by Analog Cyan. Yeah! Nice! Which I believe was inspired by one of our, our rambles on the podcast. We should have Analog Cyan on the show. Ooh, That's what we should do. We could do that. They've now appeared at least twice. Yes. <laughs> friend, friend of the show, Analog Cyan. All right, uh, Matt, what's this first one? Okay, the strong odor is the thing that gets me. And a thorn-covered rind. Oh, I got it. Fruit. I think I it's it. 
durian. It's durian, yes. I've had durian ice cream, and it was done in a way that I guess it didn't smell. So that's that's good, I guess. Interesting. Okay. I think it's actually pronounced durian. Is it? Yeah. And there we go. The next one is 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 BBQ. Yeah. Because it, it matches the three-letter acronym. You're right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's good. It must contain a name often given to various types of fish deemed exceptionally large or tasty. Uh, what? <laughs> I wonder if this is where like the, the word king comes in. The, the title given to a male monarch. So this would be like king salmon or like... But that's not a type of fish. You are on the right lines there, Ruth. It's not, va- it's not various types of huh? fish. Did you just say, huh? I, did, I, did, I mean... <laughs> I've since realized that that is a thing, but what it sounded like to me is that you somehow, you know, monarchize your your fish. Is monarchize a word? It is now. Make monarch your animals. King, like like there's king crab. I I guess, yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I realized afterwards. Large or tasty. I just, I. (laughs) (laughs) Exceptionally large or tasty. You're almost there, Ray. Like there are lots of different types of tuna. Think of them as a collective. Kingfish. <laughs> it is a kingfish. What? Yeah. All right. Well, we'll just type, we'll just fat finger that okay. one in then. Uh, it must contain a dish in which a food is dipped into a communal pot of liquid. Fondue. And you've got it. Is, is COVID ruined fondue? That's what I want to know. It has ruined birthday cakes and blowing candles on birthday cakes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Although it was my wife's birthday and she blew out the candles and I... Yeah, people still seem to do it and yeah. it disgusts me. <laughs> but there we go. All right, so durian, BBQ, kingfish fondue. Yeah, that sounds gross. <laughs> I mean, I, I would give it a go. Oh, I wouldn't. I'll eat almost anything. So. It also sounds like you're cooking the bird kingfisher hmm. rather than a large or exceptionally tasty fish, which they're quite cute little birds. Yes, they are. They're beautiful. That's what I'll leave you with. <laughs> No, they're, they're beautiful. Yeah, don't stick one of them in a fondue. <laughs> or do, you know? You do you. Random but memorable. You do you. You do you with fondue. <laughs> All right. Take care of yourself and each other. Love you. Love you, Rose. Love you. Bye. Bye.